This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello welcome thanks for downloading the times red box podcast you absolute lazy layabout we are going to get you into fighting fit shape so you can compete in the olympics and we've got some advice for you Adam Peaty's mum is going to tell you what to do. The person who chairs the British Olympic Association is going to tell you what to do. The person who got uh, Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill into shape is going to tell you what to do. Um, All you need to do is just actually bring some dedication to the table and stop listening to podcasts. Although not this one, obviously. Keep listening because all of that advice is later on. After we pick the brains of our fantastic columnists today, India Knight and James Marriott. Are you well, India? I am very well, thank you. James, you're in the flesh in the studio again. Yes, I am, and uh, all, feeling all the, feeling all the better for it. Wonderful, good to have you both here. Um, I sat on the train this morning and I opened my copy of the Times. Uh, and I thought I've got thirty minutes. I'll have a leaf through, and I thought, oh, James will have written something uh, fascinating here. I'll, I'll flick to that page, and I read the headline: "If we want to live, we have to suffer and weep." And there was a moment where I sort of shut the paper again, and I thought, oh. and then I thought I opened it again, and it was fantastic. But it was a classic case of didn't write the headline, James. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I, I think actually some people keep saying I, I, need to, I need to write some optimistic columns actually at some point. Um, but I don't know. It's good to be a little bit depressed at times, isn't it? Which is actually which is actually the thrust of the column. Yes, and the kind of... Um, oh, I've completely forgotten what the word is now, but uh, things, you know, just not actually feeling tip-top it doesn't have to be a, a medical issue or something that needs intervention. Yeah, exactly. Just that... Um, well, I was sort of fascinated to read about uh, the kind of transhumanist movement, which is the incredibly popular in Silicon Valley with uh, various tech billionaires. There's all these sort of uh, utopian ambitions for the human race to sort of uh, digitally augment our intelligence and technically technologically augment our bodies and help us, you know, extend extend the human lifespan. But I was very interested reading about um, this particular aspect of this movement, which wants to, uh, with characteristic ambition, abolish all sent all the suffering of all sentient life forms um and that's I was sort of really interested to read that because it made me sort of think of a theme that i think i've sort of noticed a bit in society which is a kind of slightly ob- i feel like a lot of our society is geared around this slightly sort of obsessive evasion of um of any of any of any kind of suffering so sort of think about all that wellness stuff mm. and the kind of uh, incredibly elaborate lengths people go to to you know, to stop feeling remotely stressed, you know, all the kind of meditation and uh, mindfulness and yoga and stuff. And I sort of was thinking that uh, we're forgetting uh, an important truth about life, uh, which is that uh, the human condition is suffering and suffering is important. Sorry, this is very depressing, isn't it? Um, that just, uh, suffering is, suffering is um, 
just a sort of important part of life. And um, although it can be horrendous, and obviously, you know, uh, proper mental, mm. you know, re- mental health issues require medical attention, um, we shouldn't forget that it's something that can sort of deepen our experience of life. And, you know, all... Um, all, all human all human experiences is is valuable. Yes, and I should point out, I'm being facetious. It's a fantastic, no, no, interesting no, 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 read. Kind. No, I think um... Um, <laughs> India. Where do you sit with all of this? Are you right now under a load of hot stones covered in goop products? No, no, I really hate all of that stuff, and I hate the pathologizing. I can't say it. Turning. That's turning the word I was looking for. Pathology. <laughs> what is it? Pathologization of of, of ordinary one. human conditions. So, mm. for example, my daughter, who is seventeen, might say, uh, "Oh, I have my, my anxiety is terrible. I have, you know, I have anxiety about my maths test." And you have to say, "No, no, you don't have anxiety. It's not a condition. You are anxious. You are feeling anxious. These are not the same thing." I think it's really important to keep things like that very very clearly separate otherwise you know you end up being 200 years old and a kind of imbecile ninny you know um (laughs) feeling feeling no feelings you have to let you have to i think in order to live a full life you have to let yourself feel what you are feeling and i think not only is it important in terms of for example mental health but also it's important in terms of being a human being. Otherwise, you might as well be a sort of placid, I don't know, something a bit higher than an amoeba and a bit <laughs> lower than a teddy. You know, and what's it's not it, it has nothing to do with life or, or indeed. I mean, as James says in his particularly excellent column this week, uh, uh, creativity and art and thought and all the things that are beautiful and that matter very often come from a place of suffering or discomfort or misery, mm. or mourning, or, you know, all of these things. So, yeah, absolutely. India, for I technical agree. reasons I don't understand, but whenever you speak, a picture of you flashes up on the screen here in the studio, and it's you sitting in the most fantastic pink-looking sitting room, looking fabulous. Oh, my God, I'm so close to my phone. You must just be able to look up my nostrils. No, 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 it's like, a, it's a, like a professional it. photograph that just flicks up. Oh, absolutely. it's something they put on in the studio. Anyway, it's a great photo. Um oh. James, is it the case, as, as you were saying, that actually, well, I guess you were sort of getting at this, India, that there's a lot of um, creative good to, to come out of these sort of dreadful feelings and actually that particular grisly end of the, of the human condition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, um, one, of, one of my heroes, the, uh, the poet Philip Larkin, said that happiness writes white, which is that if you're, you know, it's very hard to create any art from position of um, perfect happiness, which I think is just because perfect happiness is not a particularly central aspect of the human condition. Um, Another really interesting thing I I wanted to mention was, um, I think there's a lot of, if you pick up almost any sort of big ideas book, these books like, you know, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari and a a load of others, there's this kind of, um, there's this really sort of current idea that um, when human beings were hunter-gatherers, we all lived in a state of sort of absolute perfect. That was our natural environment and Mm. therefore we were all sort of perfectly happy in that. Um, which I think is sort of, I think sort of um, anthropology is increasingly sort of sceptical of. And um, one, of, one, of, one, of, one of my favourite books I've read recently by an evolutionary psychiatrist, psychiatrist called uh, Randolph Ness called uh, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings is about the um, evolutionary history of why we develop emotions. And he makes the really good point, um, which is that we didn't uh, develop emotions. Humans didn't evolve to feel happy. Humans evolved to... Uh, survive and to reproduce Mm. and our emotions make us do those things but they don't necessarily make us um feel happy and the you know the the things that propel us to survive and reproduce those often aren't good feelings um so there's just the most fundamental things about um about about being human and it excited me particularly because my um 
my all-time favorite philosopher Schopenhauer says that um, life is striving and life, the condition of life is striving and struggling. Um, and I just thought he was proved right by science uh, 200 yeah. years, 200 years later, which was incredibly gratifying to me because that's been, always been one of my big hobby horses. In the paper today, oh, sorry, India, go on. Sorry, no, I just wanted to say the other thing is that this constant striving for some sort of idea of perfect idyllic happiness actually makes people really unhappy because they were that you know they look at I don't know their Instagram feed or or, or famous people in the newspaper or whatever and they think oh I haven't got that and then they feel crap and so you know constantly striving for something that doesn't exist and that is inachie- unachievable makes you so unable to live in the moment that you're doomed to a life of misery and dissatisfaction so you might as well embrace the bad as well as the good because then you know then you can proceed yeah. in a kind of semi stately fashion. In the Times today, there's uh, a whole big page on the uh, that woman who stole all those jewels in Boodles. Of course, we had the news yesterday that she was jailed after she tried to blame it on her dead sister. India, at the weekend, you were writing about this, how, well, as the headline has it, is it wrong to secretly root for the cleavage-flashing bandit of Boodles? <laughs> um, what is it about her that is hypt- hypnotising you so? It's just the balls of it, really. I mean, you know, we must say that stealing diamonds from esteemed ancient journals is very wrong. Very, very wrong. Although the diamonds have never been found, actually, interestingly. Uh, the absolute, just the, the, the moment where she uh, picked up the diamonds, put them in her handbag, was told by Boodle's gem expert to desist at once and put them back on the table, went, all right, all right, put them back on the table. And in that split second, she'd swapped... The, the pouch of diamonds with a pouch of pebbles. And I just think that moment, you know, and then all she had to do was make it out of the building. I just, I find it quite exciting. And I know it's wrong. And I know it's wrong to steal diamonds, but still I think there's something really kind of thrilling about old-fashioned heists, like the old men who dug into the vault in Hatton Garden. And... But this is a complete, you know, there was, there, there was some violence. I think here there was no violence, no nothing. It was incredible amounts of planning. And mm. then just effrontery, just incredible audacity. And actually, and the thrilling thing, James, as well, is that this is real, but it's actually, you know, there's something quite um, enjoyable in fiction of somebody just like getting away with something, as India says, sort of potentially harmless in a physical sense, um, but thrilling. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I love that column by India, and it completely it made me feel um, made me feel much better because. I can't because you stole a load of diamonds. No, and yes, now well, you, made me India feel much, is absolving you. <laughs> made me feel that India won't judge me for uh, for my various heists. Um, <laughs> um, no, I just I don't know. I mean, yeah, as, as India says, I, and we have to acknowledge this is wrong. But I just I I will never not be able to. I won't be able to stop myself emotionally rooting for um, ingenious um, cleavage flashing diamond bandits over 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 the, over the diamond company. I, I I just think I'm emotionally incapable of making myself feel the other way. It's just so cool. I mean, how I don't know. It's just sort of human ingenuity and mm. the audacity and the bravery. And I, it's lots of, you know, lots of very admirable qualities, but maybe uh, in the service of, I think we probably have to acknowledge, uh, unadmirable ends. But India, as you sort of say in the column, it does read like fiction. I mean, just even the fact that she's called Lulu. I mean, that's it's almost a bit sort of, OK, tone it down a bit <laughs> if someone were writing the sort of novel of this. And then there was all that brilliant detail in the... Um... In the reporting, so the head of Boodles, I think he's called Mr. Wainwright, I might be getting that wrong, um, 
claimed that he couldn't tell when he was shown um, efits of Lulu and Lulu's sister, because Lulu said it was her dead sister. Mm. And actually, the DNA wasn't very conclusive about that. So, you know, I mean, I doubt it was a dead sister, but you never know. Anyway, when he was shown pictures of them, he said he couldn't tell. He couldn't remember the woman's face because he was so transfixed by her enormous bosoms, um, <laughs> which were on display. And, all, and you can sort of see, you know, the head of this kind of very grand jewellers and this woman with her cleavage, not in the first flush of use, behaving slightly oddly. And you can just, you can just feel him wishing she'd go away, but wanting the deal. And so sort of, you know, when, when she gets up to leave, not going, hang on a minute, yeah. you know, just sort of thinking, oh, ghastly person, leave my lovely jewellers. It's all so satisfying. I wish all news stories were like that. <laughs> and and speaking of kind of um, real life, uh, sort of exciting real life stories, I guess in terms of the Olympics in the past few days, we've been absolutely spoiled in terms of uh, triumph and loss. Of course, the news we had this morning about uh, Helen Glover, she's now going to, after her comeback, after having um, children in the rowing, uh, she's going to retire, retiring without a medal. On the flip side, we had Tom Daly, who finally made it gold and is probably going to retire afterwards. Um James, lots of people in the past few days have been have been again thinking: Do we put too much pressure on these poor souls in Tokyo um, for the you know three minutes or even sort of a few seconds of their life? Yeah, I was thinking that actually. Um, the main part of the Olympics I've been watching this year is the skateboarding, which I've been really? completely transfixed by. Um, and the thing that because it's is that skate- why you're in that hoodie? Uh, yes, and that's that's why that's why in I was doing um, <laughs> sort of kick kick flips uh, in the studio earlier. Um, <laughs> no, I. I, I, I um, but yes, so because uh, skateboarding is in its first Olympic year, and the thing that struck me about skateboarding was that the, the re- part of the reason I was enjoying it so much was the personality of all the participants. They all, you know, were turning up and they all had their earpods in and their chains, and um, they were all doing silly dances whenever they won. Um, and it struck me that that sort of, I think it must be because skateboarding has not had the that huge, vast pressure of years and years and years and years of an Olympic sport creating this industry of, of pressure and expectation and uh, sort of horrible, mad, life-destroying training programmes that gives it this sort of extra sort of flamboyance and... The Joy. Look, yeah, and the people look like they have lives outside skateboarding. And it made me think that, you know, there's something to be said for the kind of, you know, for not taking... As amazing as it is to watch people do fantastic things, there's something yeah. to be said for not taking sport incredibly seriously and letting... You know, letting sort of letting people have interesting lives and be interesting, and yeah. um, you know, those skateboarders clearly have other aspects to their lives in a way that I suspect, if you're, you know, in very elite, you know, gymnastics or running, it's very very hard mm. to you know do much outside. And you can training. see on the other end of the spectrum, away from uh, skateboarding, and you can see what happens when that pressure comes becomes too much, and you have people like Simone Biles having to sort of walk away from it. Yes, I admire her enormously from, uh, for uh, walking away from it. My favourite Olympic story of the day is the gold medal um, for Ireland for Paul O'Donovan and Fintan McCarthy in the uh, men's double skulls because they're completely great. I mean, they're a really good example of people who seem, at least from the outside, to not take the whole thing insanely seriously. Um, they train in... Um, in, at Skibbereen Rowing Club, Skib- uh, Skibbereen has a very special place in my heart. And uh, when uh, O'Donovan won the silver at Rio with his brother, I don't know if you remember the, the kind of the interview went viral. He said, "You know, there's not much to it. You're trying to get from A to B, and you pull like a dog, and pull like a dog became a hashtag." <laughs> <laughs> and they're very, they're very kind of chipper. And then they were sort of wandering about Rio, and they and. And um, even uh, yesterday, after winning this gold, they were saying it's a real shame we're not in Skibbereen because the town will be, you know, there'll be barrels in the street and uh, 
people will be exploding with joy. So there is a way, maybe easier for men than mm. women, I don't know, of of just being really, really good at what you do and staying sane about it. But um, yes, yeah, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, you know, I think they've done a really significant and important thing and they, I take my hat off to them. I hope you'll both have uh, pen and paper ready at 11 o'clock, well, just after 11 o'clock, because we've got advice for you both on how to become an Olympian. Actually, how to get involved, how to start training, how to get all that money from the National Lottery uh, to take you to sporting excellence. Um, if we were to lay all of that on for you, James, in India, what's, what would you be doing, James? Absolutely skateboarding. It's clearly the coolest thing ever and I was a complete idiot as a teenager uh, to spend so much time reading books and not skateboarding, I, I really repent about that. India, what are we training you for? It's only really going to happen if there's an Olympics of eating cheese. Oh, <laughs> what a great of yes! I, I, I will, I will, I'll happily challenge India to that one. You could sort of, you sort of like, you could sort of scoop up the chutney with the medal and sort of chop it. You're fantastic. That was Indian Knight and James Merritt, our fantastic columnist. In a moment, how we're going to whip you into Olympic shape. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, our guide on how to be an Olympian. Starting us off this morning, somebody who quite literally knows how an Olympian is born, Caroline Peaty. Morning, Caroline. Good morning. Of course, mum of uh, one of Team GB's uh, greatest uh, hopes at the uh, Tokyo Olympics, who won gold recently. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'm wondering, from what we'd like to get from you is, is how does it all start, I guess? And does it begin as just an occasional hobby, swimming, something to do of, of an afternoon when you're young? Um, it all starts as, as fun. Well, as a life skill first, because they need to swim. Yes. Um, and then it sort of developed from um, there into some fun for Adam to compete because that's one of the, the biggest things for Adam. He loves to compete. Yes. It doesn't and, matter what it is. <laughs> and I wonder at what point, so you're taking him along to the, to the swimming bath because he needs to learn how to swim like children do. At, at what point does it get uh, serious, if that's the word? Um, I think it's when you have um, the intervention of a, a coach that sees the talent um, that your child has, um, has that rapport with your child um, and moves him on from there. Because when he was, was he 14? About 14 and a half, Mel wanted a meeting with me and he, she said to me that, you know, 
he 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 is a future Olympian. Really? Yeah. That's what, they, that's what she said at that point. Yeah, I didn't believe it, mine, but there you go. <laughs> I just thought it was her just getting. But how does get him involved? And quite me if I'm wrong, is Mel still Mel's still involved with with what Adam does at the moment? And Mel is his coach. Yeah, yes. but so how does someone like Mel actually see a sort of you know a, a younger Adam in the pool swimming? How how do they even meet? Mel met him through um, a trial. Um, he was he was at Dove Valley, hmm. and um, a coach had come over from Derby um, to. I think to you know to do some um, work with the with the children, and he said to me, he says, you know, it's worth going for a trial with Mel. She's a very good coach um, for the city of Derby. It's, it really is, and he said this a few times, you know, that you know she's really good. Just go for a tryout. Um, well, I wasn't that eager, but Adam was, so that's what he did. Um, and then the rest is history. Really, they built that that relationship up. Um, and at one point, you know, that relationship, it sort of separated ours, didn't make it anything less. Mm. It's just, it was a different, he's got two relationships, one with his coach, which overrode mine sometimes. Um, and then one, his family one. In what kind of way? Um, I think one is, I think she had more influence over him at, at certain points, um, and I suppose she still does it at some points, you know. Um, he, like, it's like um, the extra sessions he used to have to do. Um, you know, I was sort of dragged along. Mm. Um, I had to do it. I never had much choice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the increased sessions. But Mel has been so good. She's, she's still there for us as a family and there for Adam as well. And, and, and as a parent, is, is there ever a point where you worry about your child? with these kind of aspirations, not having fun and you sort of worry, oh, is this, is this too much of a of a grind for them, especially when they're in their, you know, mid-teens? I think, no, I, I would have done um, if it wasn't Adam. But Adam, so we're not very pushy parents, you know. We're very pushy where, like, the um, learning to swim was and their education, we're very pushy that way that they have to complete this, that and the other where, you know, that homework. Yeah. But... Where the swimming, where extracurricular like the gymnastics that they they used to do, and the swimming, we weren't very pushy there. Adam was the only person he was the one that led everything. You know, he said he wanted to do it. I think there was one point he's not. He said, I'm, "I don't know whether I want to carry on." And I said, "Well, you know, you've got to finish off what you've started now, and then." you know, towards the summer break, because they always have a summer break, then rethink. If you don't want to do it, we're behind you 100%. Hmm. So and what... sometimes they just need that time just to, you know, rethink. And so what is your advice then to, to parents who are maybe in your position minus, you know, a, a fair few years? And, and do you have parents coming up to you saying, you know, you know, my kid seems like they're, you know, some fantastic leading light in whatever sport I want them to go all the way, what do I do? I just let let them have fun. Let them have fun because I think while the while they're having fun, they are learning. And and while it's fun, it's not like work, is it? Um, it's more like play. So I'd just go with the flow, but be prepared to have a you know to invest. If you really want to go the whole way, it's investing of time, um, time away from your family, financial, um, you know, 
restraints on that as well. Mm. So there's a lot to think about. But, you know, if, if it's your child and it's within your means, then go for it. Because we just lived his dream. Yeah. I, I, to, to be honest, I can honestly say hand on heart that I never expected him to win an Olympic gold. Never? I thought, uh, no, not at the, that point. But because he loved it and he, and he always used to say, I'm going to be an Olympian. I'm going to win an Olympic gold. But I don't know whether you've got children, but you you just sort of, yes, you, yeah. Of course if you, work you are. Hard, of course you, know, you are. Is that what you're if saying? You, if you, yeah. <laughs> if you work hard, you can achieve whatever you want to. And I'm a great believer in that. You mentioned a moment ago, if you've got if you've got the means, that's a, this, that's an aspect in this, isn't it? It's actually quite a costly business. And I wonder how hard was it for you and, and, and the family in the early days to actually fund some of this? Until Adam reached, um, I think, the Commonwealth, he had some um, funding from Sport Aid later on. But at the very early days, he didn't, we, we had to fund all that ourselves. Now, both Mark and I are very, um, you know, we're both working people, work hard, um, you know, in long hours. Um, so we were trying to put every penny into Adam, but we had a great set of neighbours an absolutely fantastic set of neighbours. We used to have like, um, we used to host um, little parties, you know, like evenings to get togethers. Um, and our neighbour, Angela, um, she used to, Angela and Keith, he, they used to raise funds for us through um, raffles. Wow. You know, that which they used to draw at our um, parties. Um, and that used to pay for the petrol. Gosh. For me. Or, you know, if we needed trunks. Um, like there's a company, small company, roof flat tops, and there's a few little companies in Utoxita. Like they're not massive companies, but they used to donate a hundred pounds here, a hundred pounds there. So absolutely fantastic. And I wonder now, because because you're at the point where Adams, you know, winning gold and he's in Tokyo doing absolutely amazing things. Obviously, it, this all seems worth it. Um, but there'll be many parents out there, sort of slogging away as you were, trying to scrape the money together. Should there be more financial support for? you know, young hopefuls like Adam was years and years ago to actually stop someone, you know, maybe in a, in a sort of less fortunate situation than Adam was slipping through the net? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm a great believer in funds. Um, but if you ha if you look around and search the internet, there are um, charities that will support you, like the Sir Stanley Matthews Foundation and Stoke-on-Trent. They um, gave us, um, I think it was about £750, mm. you know, for before he went to a major competition because he needed the trunks. Yeah. Um, because I, I honestly didn't think how, the, the cost of the trunks and all the equipment they needed, it, you know, it, was, it was such a lot. But, but I take your point about the charities, but shouldn't, you know, um, the UK as a whole, uh, big broadcasters, the sponsors, they're making as much hay as they can at the moment out of Adam. Shouldn't they have been the ones putting their hands in their pockets early on to actually fund people who might be the next Adam? Yes, I do. I think... Um, they, they do really need to support our younger children uh, who have got a talent or a skill within the sport. But I think they all, I think all children should have access to whatever sport they what they choose to do, and, mm. you know, and to have that fund there to tap into to go to whatever level they they want to, as long as they're not forced. Obviously, you yeah. know, because we we struggled, we we really did struggle. We never had a holiday or a breakaway for four years. Has he treated you to a nice holiday now? Um, he treated us to Rome um, when oh. he was racing in Rome um, a couple of years ago. 
but you can hint to him if you like. <laughs> well, you've done well. You've done that now on the radio, um, Caroline. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your for your time and um, and yeah, congratulations on um, on Adam. You must be absolutely thrilled. Thank you. Um, all we the, are all the best. That's Caroline Peaty there, of course, uh, mother of Adam Peaty. Back to our guide on how to make an Olympian. Olympian. Steve Ingham is uh, CEO at Supporting Champions. He's a sports scientist who led Team GB's support team in London and Rio. Uh, morning, Steve. Hello. Uh, we were just hearing from Caroline Peaty about uh, the early days of, of Adam Peaty and how they actually get him into um, the slipstream, for want of a better, for a better phrase, in terms of uh, elite sports. Um, once someone is with you, um, at what kind of level are they? Well, typically there's, there's a level of excellence already being demonstrated. So there's a sense that, that they've got potential and then they you have what's called a funnel really where, where people start to show prominence uh, that might be a physical quality that typically it's also a psychological quality uh, the tenacity the resilience and and the willingness to mm. to put the work in and, and so, oh, i was yeah. going to say and say say i'm going through the, through this system and i've and i've shown <laughs> myself to be an absolutely amazing swimmer um, i'm 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 on your radar and you're talking about this funnel how are you actually testing that kind of resilience how are you actually um you know making those sort of difficult decisions about who you support and, and who isn't well first of all there's a there's a quite a, a shrewd analysis of what it takes to be successful in an event and that can shift with time so you profile the event and therefore you've got an idea of the physical demands the the mental demands and, and so that varies based upon the the, the t- different types of events so something like a team pursuit in cycling, it is really controlled. And so Mm. you can predict with a level of probability what's required. Whereas, say, an event with lots of moving parts like canoe slalom, where there's chances for mistakes or in team sports, Mm. you're up against an opposition. And as we've seen in the taekwondo, uh, something can change very quickly. And so you have an idea of what it takes within the event, but then you start profiling the physical characteristics and mental characteristics. So you might do a physiological test to determine the engine size of an athlete, uh, the, the strength characteristics, the power characteristics, and also how those are adapting over time. So it might be that you come in to a system and you don't, you are sort of just a little bit off the, the required level, but over time you're adapting faster than somebody else who might be already kind of fulfilled their potential. So those are the sorts of profiling methods that we would use to mm. ensure that we're looking after people that are already demonstrating talent or those that could bloom a little bit later yeah. in, further down the line. And so then when you're backing them, you've done all that, you've, you've identified them as you know a, a really worthwhile uh, hopeful. Um, Give us an example of the kind of work that goes on around an athlete. Um, maybe give us an example of someone you've worked with, something that, you know, as particularly uh, complicated or elaborate maybe in terms of the, the, the science and the, and, and the support actually pushing that person to, towards gold. Well, one thing to, to sort of bear in mind, that there's no textbook on elite <laughs> performance. Um, there's, there, there's very few research studies, primarily because there's only one of these sort of rare Olympic champions kicking about. So you can't just go and look it up. You have to use objective science to work it through. And so a good example would be Jessica Ennis, Jessica Ennis-Hill, Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill, whatever she's going for by this these days. So I started working with her when she was 18 years old. And 
so in that situation, she's so she, she's a heptathlete. If anyone hasn't already heard of her, yeah. uh, she's got seven events to to perform, and five of those events are real strengths. The last two, when she was eighteen years old, the javelin and the eight hundred meters, were weaknesses. So she was leading the world championships in two thousand and four, junior world championships, and went down to fifth place and then sixth place in those events. And so there's always a competing demand where should we put more into the hurdles, should we put more into the shot put, should we put more into the high jump? But the event that was really sort of separating the winners from the losers was the 800 meters. And fundamentally, a lot of the events in heptathlon are over within the blink of an eye. So they're explosive power oriented movements. Whereas the 800 meters, you train for that and you're, you're not far off training for uh, you know, endurance event, a marathon mm. almost, you're turning them into a jogger. And so what we know from how the body works and our physiology is that we've got different types of muscle fibers. And if you train for strength, you your endurance goes down. If you train for endurance, your strength goes down. Mm. So we've now got a, a problem to solve of how do we get the 800 meters really good without it eroding from hurdles performance 200 meter performance yeah. etc and is that can i just ask is that going on in your head and, and in the heads of people in the team or is there some kind of like strategy document written out for jessica ennis hill to continue your example of let we need to do this to get like, a bit more like this and that you know is all of that actually formulated um well if you look at uh, the tradition of brilliant heptathletes in the country You've got Denise Lewis, Kelly Southerton, you've got Jess, you've got Katrina Johnson Thompson, and all of those will do it very differently. So there's no blueprint for that. And in the moment for the coaches, for Team Genis, as we were called, <laughs> we're making we're making 51, 49 decisions where actually it's a real weigh, weighing up of the judgment, which where should we go? And part of that is applying scientific methods yeah. to to what she's doing as in we think this probably might be the right way to go about it for for jess back in 2004 2005 we've got time to test that and trial it and and develop a performance plan that she can go and deliver and so the first time she delivered the performance plan that we would kind of hatched was 2009 three years out from the 2012 mm. games and that gives her time to refine it rather than just launching a new program uh, and you know a week before the games and just finally and briefly what about the psychological side of all of this because that's definitely come to the to the forefront in terms of the coverage you've seen at the moment especially in terms of what's happening with Simone Biles how do you factor all of that in the uh, the mental health of somebody going through all of this yeah and i think this is very much at the fore is that we we've got to be really clear when we're setting setting out for these goals, what's the agreed way of working here? Um, in, in coaching terms, in psychology, they talk about contracting. What, what are we choosing to do? How are we going, how's it going to run around here? And, and I think now that the stigma around talking about what's going on, on in our mind is starting to drop slowly, mm. but surely it's still there. And there's still, a lot of, uh, I guess, criticism of somebody f showing weakness under a certain circumstance. Um, we, we've got to we've got to normalise it in terms of the way that we're training a muscle for strength output. We're also strengthening the mind, but at times a muscle will give way. They'll fatigue. It will break. Um, and so we've got to understand that that mental health is is on a par in a similar way, and treat people with respect uh, in that area. 
Good to talk to you. Absolutely fascinating stuff, Steve. Thank you so much for your time. That's Steve Ingham, uh, CEO at Supporting Champions. Um, all of this, of course, is not just about individual athletes and teams. It's part of a system. There is a national strategy. There is national funding. Uh, part of that is the British Olympic Association. Earlier, I spoke to its chair, Sir Hugh Robertson, in Tokyo. I think there are four things that contribute to an athlete winning a, a gold medal. They are, in it's sort of in order, money, structure, coaching and athletes. Um, the money has come through a combination of a grant from the Exchequer. I mean, um, Olymp- uh, Olympic sports gets, uh, Olympic and Paralympic sport actually gets at the moment just under 60 million a year from the Exchequer, but it gets a lot more money from national lottery players. And if it were not for that, that accounts for about two thirds of money. If it were not for that, um, none of this would be possible. You then need to use that money to put the right structure, the right high performance structures around the athletes. You then need to find the best coaches anywhere around the world to coach those athletes. And then you need athletes with the necessary talent and, of course, mental toughness to succeed in what's an incredibly competitive environment. Remember that many, many Olympic medals are decided by fractions of a second. So you've got to have athletes that are absolutely in the right mental frame, uh, right sort of state of mind in order to achieve in this environment. So is there a lot of investment not just into the person, but also, I guess, the, the, the science and the technology around them that, that, that supports them as well? Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you could, you could, I mean, if, you, if you're one of these sort of, you know, one in a million talents, you can probably, you know, sort of Usain Bolt or something like this, you can probably get through without a structure and without coaching, though it would be extremely difficult. But for the overwhelming majority of Olympic athletes, they need to have the right structure around them. And of course, the combination of lottery and exchequer funding buys in the nutritional experts, the right coaching experts, the right conditioning experts, the right um, you know, psychiatrists and every everything else that wraps around an athlete to enable them to perform at their best. What is the national strategy at the moment in, in terms of Olympics? Is it simply win as many medals as possible or are, or are certain sports prioritised maybe? No, sports are prioritised depending on, on the likelihood of their winning a medal mm. at an Olympic Games. But this is done over quite a long time horizon. So UK Sport, which is the government funding body, um, works very closely with the individual governing bodies of the sports. Uh, and we have 26 sports actually represented out here in Tokyo at the moment. And they try and identify the athletes that are most likely to win medals at Olympic Games, not only for the next Games, but for the one after, and very often for the one after that. And as an example of how that works, here in Tokyo, we reckoned when we started that 70% of the squad had a better chance of winning a medal in Paris than they did in Tokyo. But they're here for a run through. You know, you may be lucky, mm. and we have been you know, in a number of instances, but, but it's, it's very much a sort of long-term, well-planned, thought-out strategy that's there to deliver medals in successive games, not just all at one time. So, so what are the, the growth areas looking forward through um, all the, you know, looking maybe even all the way to Brisbane? Um, what actually are the areas where you think that that's what, where we're going to see growth? Um, I, I think what we've always tried to do as a country is to try and give ourselves the maximum number of chances across the greatest number of sports. So I said unusually for National Olympic Committee, we have 26 sports represented here. Uh, if you looked at the medal table in Rio, we won medals in more sports than any other country anywhere in the world. And the country that normally leads the medal table, the United States, does that. Uh, they, they win by concentrating very heavily on track and field and, and the pool. We don't do that. We spread ourselves over a much wider base 
Um, clearly, that's slightly more costly. But actually, if you look at the results for what is, after all, a tiny island of 70-odd mm. million people, it's been spectacularly successful. Well, spectacularly successful. But do you think you have the resource that you need? Or when you go to Tokyo and, and you see everyone assembled, uh, do you find yourself um, jealous, maybe, of, of other countries and, and what they're putting into it? No, uh, not at the moment. I mean, I, I think it's reasonable to say that if you're, the, the United States operates an entirely different system to everybody else because they're underwritten by big broadcast money. Um, so Russia and well, Russia in, in whatever form it's competing and China, you know, are, are two states that do pour vast resources into it that clearly we can't match. But actually, we're, we're at the moment very well funded at a level that has produced huge success, first in Beijing, then rolled on into London and then extraordinarily into Rio. Uh, and is, you know, as you can see with the results thus far, you know, we're going to do well again mm. here in Tokyo. So actually, in a sense, the, you know, the, the, the Olympic success for us in this country isn't purely about money, but goodness me, it helps. And actually, if there was one message to everybody listening to this, is mm. please go out and support the athletes by buying your lottery tickets. And just a couple more, if I may, in terms of uh, people's enthusiasm for the Games this time, it's been somewhat um, tampered by um, the availability to watch it. Of course, this is for the, the first time in a long time that you can't watch all the sports live, free-to-air on, on national television. Discovery have a huge slice of it. Lots of people are being annoyed. Mm-hmm. Do you think, as a, being a crown jewel event that it is, um, the Olympics should be free-to-air on television or online for everybody? Um, well, well, wait. I mean, it's, it's, I'm afraid to say it's over a decade ago. But I, I, um, I was the minister in charge of all of this, um, government minister in charge of it back in 2010 when I was Olympics minister. And actually, I, I made the Olympics a, um, a free-to-air event. So yes, clearly it's, it's disappointing in terms of that, and much more importantly, dis- disappointing in terms of Team GB. Uh, at the British Olympic Association, we have to raise all our own money to bring the athletes out here, to kit them out, to, to get them going at, at a game. That all relies on sponsorship and commercial income that is driven by the visibility of the athletes. So, yes, it's clearly disappointing if people aren't seeing uh, as much of, of the athletes as we would want. It's actually it's very disappointing for the athletes themselves, probably most of all for people trying to watch it, because the nation really gets behind TGB. And if they can't access the athletes, that's disappointing mm. for everyone. And just finally, Sir Hugh, are you having fun? Yes, it, it's um, after all the doubts before this and all the complications of getting out here and, you know, goodness me, getting into Tokyo, you know, it's seven days of PCR <laughs> tests yes. and getting through the airport and all the rest of it. It was, you know, it, it's been, it, I mean, it's been a huge achievement to get 375 athletes representing 26 sports here in Tokyo, mm. touching every bit of wood around me. You know, we <laughs> haven't had a positive coronavirus test, you know, unlike, I'm sad to say, many other NACs around the world. So, I, I think the athletes are now really into the sport, worrying less about getting pinged on the app. And uh, and actually, this Olympics, as they always do, is getting a momentum of its own, and that is great. So, Hugh Robertson, Chair of the British Olympic Association, thanks for your time. No, not at all. My pleasure. That was Sir Hugh Robertson, the Chair of the British Olympic Association. So, hopefully now you've already got your lycra on, you've already shimmied into your trunks, and you are ready for gold. Um... Thanks for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. Matt is still off this week. I'll be back on Monday. Uh, if you subscribe, it means the podcast goes up your phone whenever you, uh, whenever there's a new podcast. Um, so yeah, I'll be back tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.